This is the Sklo Library Podcast. In this episode, we are celebrating writing, and what a crazy miracle it is. To help us explore this, we are joined by Dr. Nancy McCabe, who is the author of five creative nonfiction works and a novel. Most recently, Can This Marriage Be Saved? A Memoir. As an SES and fiction writer, she has experimented with alternate forms and has incorporated memoir, travel writing, research, and commentary on various topics. She directs the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh at Bradford and teaches the MFA program at the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Dr. McCabe, welcome to the show. Thank you. So as an academic in creative writing, I just want to take a moment and talk about what a strange phenomenon writing is. It makes sense that we would emotionally respond to things that we experience, of course, and the fact that you can relate a story to me and that I then have emotional stakes in it, even if I'm not there, kind of makes sense, right? Um, We're social animals and we can kind of project that theory of the mind. But with writing, the fact that you can hand me a page that has just light and dark images on them and that my brain will then transport me to this imaginative place where I have stakes with what happens, I'm emotionally invested, I feel like I'm there and I emotionally respond as if I am. I know we all take reading for granted because we've all been doing it since childhood, but I want to go out on a limb and declare that it's pretty phenomenal that we react this way. Have you had any experiences either in writing or reading that were particularly powerful for you? Yeah. And I love the way you put that because I can remember feeling that way as a kid too, like that, you know, writing was just another, I loved secret codes and writing was another code and it was such a miracle that we could decipher it and all the things that you said, but but yeah, I've actually had a lot of experiences like that. Um, And and I actually wrote a book about um, childhood reading And that powerful experience of being shaped by what you encounter as you're growing up. Um, My book from Little Houses to Little Women, Revisiting a Literary Childhood, um, I wrote about how formative reading shaped me. And and I reread a lot of books and then went to tourist sites related to those particular authors and books. It was fascinating to me how much I discovered that the reading that I had done as a child shaped my views, shaped my creative life. And, you know, even shaped things like my weird things, like my decorating choices, you know, that book really examines that idea, how powerful reading is in often in really subconscious ways, you know, that you don't think about at the time. So, so that's one, one part of my answer. Um, Actually, another part of my answer is recently I've gotten especially interested in the whole idea of writing as a healing art, because I think that writing it's incredibly powerful. Um, you know, when I write, I feel like it unravels my knots. You know, it's it's like this wonderful activity that has has this powerful effect. Reading and research that I've done, in addition to just my own experience of like really 50 years of writing, has has really made me think about how writing is like meditation. I think that writing can give people a greater sense of well-being, a greater sense of calm, a greater ability to cope with stress and be resilient and understand our lives and other people and our interconnectedness. And all that is backed up by research. There's research that shows physiological effects, you know, writing and, and other arts as well. 
one of the things I find really interesting too is the intersections writing that is healing with our artistic practices and values, like what we want out of an artistic piece of writing. It's not just venting on the page. It's actually really looking specifically at details and moments. For me, that's another powerful aspect of writing and reading, because I think reading can also be very therapeutic. I've been, I've been doing some workshops on this idea of writing and healing. So it's really on my mind today because I'm doing one tomorrow morning. You mentioned all the myriad ways that reading can be a gift and how the tools of language have various benefits to people, some of which may not be obvious or even ever recognized as such. At SCLO here, our children's librarians have a program that helps parents read a thousand books to their kids before kindergarten. And aside from all the research that can measure and quantify the benefits, I love the idea that there are these far-reaching intangibles that parents can give a gift to their children that is undoubtedly good, but the ways in which that gift will manifest or transform them can vary greatly as it echoes out through the rest of their lives and may very well even be different from one person to the next. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it's so interesting to go back and reread those books, you know, and, and I found myself, it was almost like it hadn't been 30 years since I'd read it. I like remembered so many details. It was like just kind of retreading territory that you're so familiar with that it's the time has passed. And, and it was just so interesting to discover things that I hadn't realized how much they had influenced the way I thought about things. As someone who instructs in writing, if folks at home have ideas in their head they want to get out on paper, what do you advise them on how to start? So I think that the best way to start is just to start, <laughs> just to write. Um, and, you know, I think that some of us have been told, like, I remember in elementary school and I visited elementary schools and done workshops and the teachers will say things like, well, now everybody don't write, just stop and think. It's, you know, write because writing is a way of thinking. You're processing things on paper. And so I think that if you can just get down stuff on to paper and let it be messy and chaotic, don't try to make it perfect. Don't try to make it you know, make sense at first, just get stuff down because what you're doing is not writing the story or the poem or whatever it is immediately. What you're doing is, is creating the marble from which you can create. So, so you want to, you want to let that, that I, I, I really believe that that messy chaotic stage is really necessary to good writing and that you have to put up with a certain amount of messiness, disorganization, but then you can go and clean it up and make it make sense. I, I think oftentimes you know, students will say to me, well, I'm not a good writer because when I write it the first time, it's not any good or, and, but nobody's is, especially the best writers, the first time they write it, it's awful. And we want it to be awful because that's what gets us to the good stuff. You know, we don't want to have it be perfect on the first try because that closes down the process and it closes down all those connections. So I think that just keeping in mind that doing it one step at a time, I sat in on an art class once, I can't draw at all, you know? So this was like a drawing one class and the professor was teaching us how to draw a hand. And she said, okay, draw a hand. And I drew, I just drew like a turkey, you know, like, um, and it was awful. And then she showed us how to look at each section of the finger and to draw each section one at a time to, and, and I did that and I was like, oh my God, this looks like a hand, this is amazing. And so then she said, okay, why don't you all practice for a while? And as soon as she told us to practice, I went back to trying to, to just like doing this turkey hand thing, you know? And I went, wait, this isn't working. Why, what am I doing? It's like, we revert to our old habits. 
And then I went, no, 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 you got to break it down into one section of the finger at a time. And I think of writing as that way too, that, that, you know, like you break it down into one thing at a time and eventually you assemble that picture of the hand, you assemble the overall piece, but you can't, you can't rush the process. Uh, and, and I have trouble con um, convincing some of my undergraduate students of this, but, and some of my graduate students as well, but um, I think that revision is the most fun part of the process. It's once you have all that stuff down on paper and you can shape it, it's really rewarding to me. I love that challenge of trying to figure out how to make it all work. And, and honestly, going back to the whole therapeutic writing thing, I think that process is what brings us deeper into our experience and helps us to make more connections and helps us to look at the world more closely when I'm trying to write a scene, like the first thing I do is I maybe just slop a bunch of stuff onto the page, but then I start shaping it into a scene with dialogue and, and setting and detail and character detail and all that stuff. And, and there's something really wonderful about that process of juggling all those elements and seeing how they're connected to each other. We will be back with Dr. Nancy McCabe after this. The Midpoint Break in most podcasts is sponsored by a company trying to sell you something. At Sklo Library, though, our only mission is to provide a strong cultural base here in central Pennsylvania. To that end, all our underwriters are from fiction. Promotional consideration for today's episode is brought to you by Lucky Brews Bar & Grill, under new management of regular human bartender Jackie Daytona. Come support the Talent Show Fundraiser to help the Clareton County Bucks as they go on to compete at states. Lucky Brew's Bar & Grill. It's simply irresistible. If you have an underwriter from fiction you would like to see sponsor the show, send your advertisement copy to podcast at sclolibrary.org. We're back talking with author Dr. Nancy McCabe. Is there a short prose selection you could read for our listeners who might not be familiar with your work? Sure. So I just thought I would read the beginning of one of the, the chapters in Can This Marriage Be Saved? And it's the one that is written in the form of an instruction manual. It's called Breathing on Your Own, and the subtitle is Tips for Breaking That Nasal Spray Addiction. So maybe it starts with a cold, allergies, hay fever. At any rate, you're stuffy and congested, and maybe all night you sniffle and snort and toss and turn and bounce off the bed to pace, hoping that gravity will clear your sinuses. Let's say you're 20 years old, newly married, though probably it's just a coincidence that your inability to breathe kicked in right after the wedding. Maybe your new husband, the son of a pharmacist, compares your nighttime breathing patterns to the rumble of a Mack truck, affectionately, of course. And maybe he offers you a topical nasal decongestant and says, try this. Maybe you're dubious, but he assures you that he has it on his dad's good authority that you should ignore the warnings on the container, the ones that caution you, not to use it for more than three days. And now you're an addict. You don't even drink and you've never smoked. You've always been an advocate of natural highs, the kind you get from stroking a purring cat or watching snowfall or listening to music or reading a great poem. But now here you are dependent on a little plastic bottle, unable to breathe without it. You always thought that addiction required a high, but now you know that sometimes all it takes is the blessed absence of pain or struggle. And it's such a relief to sleep deeply through the night. It's such a relief not to flip from side to side or start awake face to face with your regrets. With proper rest, you feel less despair about this whole mess you've gotten yourself into, this short-term cure, this escape that might be a bigger trap after all, the marriage, not the nasal spray. 
Maybe you entered this marriage with deliberate recklessness, sad and lost and scared of your bleak blank future when the boy you'd grown up with and loved for six years broke up with you abruptly and eventually moved away, disappeared. Maybe you'd foolishly believed that marriage would provide a refuge from your anxiety, that somehow it would allow you to breathe again. But no, here you are and every time you inhale a squirt of medicine and feel a rush of fresh air through your open passages, you know that you're just delaying the inevitable, that time is closing in on you. At first, you just need it once a day, but soon it's twice, three times. The spray temporarily shrinks your swelled blood vessels, but then causes them to swell up twice as big the next time. You push down panic, but still it's like you're inhaling and exhaling to the same refrain. What will you do? What will you do? What are you going to do? What follow are some guidelines for breaking that addiction gradually, but effectively. Great, thank you. So as a professional in the field, what is generally considered the best word or phrase and what's consensus on the worst? So that's a really hard question. Um, and I guess for me, I would say that the best, I'm going to be a little bit um, unspecific here, but the best is um, anything concrete related to the senses that takes us into particular moments that communicates our experience authentically. And the worst is being vague, abstract, cliche, you know, just giving phrases that anybody can project anything onto. I think it's in our specific individual experience that we find, you know, good writing, writing that we can relate to, writing that, that actually taps into our own experience as well. I had a high school sweetheart in junior year who, as a gift, gave me a vocab list. And <laughs> it might have been a little bit of a nudge that I should be more bookish. But looking back, I look out back, back on that very affectionately. And words entered my world from that that are still, you know, in my life. So, Can you remember any of them? Uh, Lilliputian was one that I didn't <laughs> know before that. <laughs> uh-huh. Right, right. So. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how those things stay with you because I still remember the vocabulary words we learned in when I was a junior and senior in high school, like when we were reading literature, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, those, or, or like I think the word slake mm. from to, I think it was to kill a mockingbird, you know. So, so yeah, it is funny how those things stay with you. <laughs> Between moving extensively, raising an adoptive daughter from China, and traveling back to your daughter's village in China, what has informed your sense of place and the concept of home? It's a great question and one that I think I think about all the time, especially because I've been working from home since last March. I almost never leave my house and I'm very lucky that way that you know I can do that. I feel like it's been a time for me to gain this sort of greater intimacy with my house, <laughs> with my living space. I live in this house that's 120 years old and and so, you know, you can't go, you can't go wide, you can't go places. So it was a chance to, it's been a chance to go deep and do all this research. But, but I definitely think that throughout my writing, I've thought about that concept of home. I never thought I would become a travel writer, you know, because I, I actually didn't travel that much when I was young. But then, you know, after traveling to China and to adopt my daughter, and then we, we traveled, we've traveled back three times. And, and then doing the trip to go to these sites that were related to children's literature, which were a kind of home for me too, because you know they represented this, this, these books that were a home for me growing up. 
I think I've always felt sort of unrooted myself. I grew up in the same house for 17 years. And then after that, I moved every, like once or twice a year for at least 15 years. You know, as a college instructor, you end up being kind of a migrant for a while if, if you're mobile, um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to work your way up. And so like living in this 120 year old house, this is the longest, I've lived here now for almost 20 years. It's the longest I've ever lived anywhere. And, and also some interesting things have happened that have made me think in different ways about the idea of home too. Like last week I had my childhood home demolished. So yeah, my parents had built this house when I was three years old. And it, um, over the years, the city of Wichita had widened the highway, created a floodplain. The house flooded regularly for many years. My family finally basically abandoned it, although we still, my younger brother and I jointly own the house or the, the property. I was like, we got to do something about this house. I've been trying to talk him into it forever. And he's like, oh, we can't afford it. I'm like, no, no, I got to get this house torn down because it's like this rotting house where, you know, it's, it's a cold winter. People are squatting there. I'm really afraid somebody's going to get hurt. I'm really afraid that there's going to be a fire or something, you know? And, and so I had it torn down and I couldn't be there because, you know, it was in Kansas and I'm in Pennsylvania. And um, so a cousin drove to the site after they tore it down she FaceTimed me. I was in a meeting and I was like, oh, I'm in a meeting, but you know what? This is really important. So I just left my computer and I went downstairs and I, she walked me around the property. So here I am like on FaceTime walking around the place, this place where I grew up. And it was just so odd. And then, you know, we chatted a bit and then I came back to the meeting and everybody was still arguing about the same little piece of language that they'd been arguing about 30 minutes before. And I just thought, this is so odd, like the way we're living right now, that like our whole lives are contained within these little spaces. And yet with technology, we're sort of going out. And, you know, I just took a tour of the place where I grew up in the middle of a meeting. I mean, that's just so odd. But um, but so that idea of, of this place that where I was rooted is now gone. And and, you know, every day I'll think, oh, my gosh, what happened to my mom's dulcimer? What happened to that portrait my dad had painted of my mom? I don't know what happened to any of that stuff. Was it in the house? So, so yeah, I mean, I mean, that's just such a uh, evocative question for me because it has been something that I've considered all my life, but especially lately. And, and also just the stories that I found about my house, the house I'm living in right now, I've researched everybody who lived here and there are stories. There are three people who were immigrants who lived in this house. There's, there was a suicide in my house. I, there's a whole story about a man who from Austria who has a name that's potentially, I, it, it, it's um, an Ashkenazi Jewish name. I don't know if he was Jewish or not. He kept a lot of things about his life secret, but he lived here during the rise of Hitler. And so there's some kind of interesting stories about that that I've, I've found like just doing this research. So it's funny, like, like I'm so far from my family, but I'm feeling this connection to all these people that lived in this house before me as if I'm somehow related to them. So, so that's been really, really fascinating. Do you think that's material for another book? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on, it started out as an essay <laughs> that was 20 pages and then it grew to 50 pages. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> what is this? And then the next thing I knew it was 90 pages. And then I kept doing research. And at this point, it's like about 200 pages. And I think I'm kind of, that's about what it's going to be. But, you know, I've got a rough draft of a lot of it. And I started writing. I mean, I had a lot of research done before the pandemic, but I started really writing and researching in in April. And yeah. so I've been really working on that. It'd be interesting if you could have a dinner party and then everyone who had lived there could attend. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it's a library podcast, so we always end with a book recommendation. But I don't know. Library in the library world, you talk about book recommendations so much. So I've taken to wrapping it into some high concept version of itself that usually gets in its own way. But at this point, I'm married to the whole thing, so it just it's just a challenge for me to continually think of new things. So this is this is your version of that. It's 40 years into the future, and science now allows us to take our consciousness and place it into a new body. It's important, though, that in your life with your new body, you keep things around you that your mind has a strong affinity for, that reminds you of your original self. What book written by someone else would you make sure is on the bookshelf to keep you anchored? Well, this is such a great question and so difficult to answer because I'm a total glutton of a reader. I read everything, and you know my house is full of books, and it's hard, so hard to narrow down to one thing because that means that I'm leaving out so many other things. Well, if you want to take us on a tour, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. So I guess、um, I would say I mean I I would actually require an entire you know wall of books <laughs> as opposed to just one book、um, and and I think that those formative books that I wrote about in in my book from Little Houses to Little Women、um, from Laura Ingalls Wilder books to books by、um, the writer Madhart Lovelace Lucy Maud Montgomery、um, Louisa May Alcott. I wrote about the Nancy Drew books. All of those are such an important part of my consciousness that I would have to have those.、Um, and then, of course, so many things that shaped me as I got older.、Um, and I wrote actually in that book about going to Emily Dickinson's house, like at the very end of the book, which you know that's not children's literature, but it's something that trans transitioned me from children's literature to adult literature. I would definitely have to have Emily Dickinson's poems.、Um, was a hugely influential book for me. But you know, so so those are the books that I think are are just they shaped me. They're part of my consciousness. I really feel like they would be necessary. But I think also the books that opened me up to other experiences too. People that weren't like me that expanded my world. Reading people like Toni Morrison, Louise Erdrich,、um, uh, more recently, Chimamanda Adichie. You know, reading people like Amy Tan. All of those. You know, actually connected me to a bigger world, and probably you know, and I think some of the Chinese American literature that I read when I was younger took me to China in a way to adopt my daughter. So those those would be very important too. And my daughter's introduced me to a ton of you know, she's very interested in. She's like, oh, mom, you know, I don't want to read all that stuff by all these all these white about the, all these white kids, you know. And she actually did read a lot of the books that that I loved when I was a kid. But then she kept bringing home other books. She's like, I'm going to read every book on the Coretta Scott King award list. And she's always bringing home these books and saying, here, read this, here, read this, you know. And so I love the way that expanded my world too. So, yeah, maybe not a wall of books. I might need a house of books. Dr. Nancy McCabe, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's been fun. Our poetry nightcap is from the poet Jackson, titled "The Voice of Jackson." The voice of Jackson is the scream of a baby who wants nothing more than to be picked up and played with. Is not hungry, is not wet, is not too hot or cold. 
has nothing physically wrong with it. Just wants to be picked up out of the cot with the pastel blankets, the teddy bear, the mobile, the silent bars. Just wants someone to take it out and play with it. The voice tries out its different screams. The red one, full of A's. The orange one, full of E's. The brown one, full of O's. The green one, full of U's. It hasn't yet tested the white one, full of I's. Fears it might break something vital. The voice tries out those screams. Then it tries to talk like the grown-ups. But the grown-up words don't fit in its mouth. It can't construct a sensible narrative. It can't do so many syllables, so many consonants. When it tries to talk like the grown-ups, the grown-ups laugh into their grown-up drinks and offer it pink lemonade. It hates pink lemonade. It prefers breast milk, the milk of a woman who fortifies herself with Guinness, the sort of Guinness you have to go to Dublin to get. The voice has gone beyond the breast milk of metaphor and into the Guinness of pataphor. But nobody picks it up. The teddy bear is unimpressed. This podcast is produced by Sklo Center Region Library. Thanks to Dr. Nancy McCabe for joining us. If you want to learn more about her work, follow the links in this episode's description. There you will also find links to the aforementioned Thousand Books Before Kindergarten program run by the Children's Librarians at Sklo Library. Just one of the many things going on at Sklo that help ease the burdens of the world and bring out the beauty that's around us. Come see all we have to offer at sklolibrary.org. I'm Ben Drain, your old friend and erstwhile companion. Take care until we meet again. Bye.